so glad to be here with you again. Thanks for letting me come back. And to everybody online, we want to say hello. We're so glad that you're here. And Debbie, thank you for being our hostess today. We're glad that you're leading that. And I especially want to thank all the guys and gals in tech who are on our cameras and they're running the sound and they're backstage and they make all of this happen. And I'm uh, really glad to be counted among the servants with them who who have the chance to lead in this worship service today. Well, when our kids were really young, and that was a really long time ago, sometimes on Friday afternoons, I would go home early, and my wife and I would load the kids up, and we would uh, go to the theater, to the movies, which we really liked to do. And back in those days, it was when they were just beginning to play the same movie in three different theaters at three different times. So we were going to see the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's how old this story is. You may remember it. And uh, we go in and of course, I've got to get the popcorn and the Coke for everybody. They go on to the theater. We're there to see the two o'clock show. And uh, I, get the, I get the things and I'm walking down the hall and it's time to go in that two o'clock theater. And I walk in and it's like, there is nobody there. There's nobody there. I thought, well, all right, I see it's down the hall. It's playing two other times. So I walk into the next theater. It's like the 2.15 show. And I cannot find my wife and kids anywhere. And they're probably 300 people that I've never seen in my life. And it gets to that point where the lights go dim and you know the music is just about to end and the movie is about to start. And I find myself facing that congregation like I'm facing you now except you're completely in the dark and I don't know any of you. And I'm looking for a wife and two kids, mine. Deanna, where are you? Nothing. Not a sound, not a peep. I'm sure if they're there, I can't believe my kids are keeping quiet. I had no other choice but to walk out of that theater back into the hall and saw one more showing like at 220, I thought there's no way that they're in there because they know. My wife knows that we're here to see the two o'clock show. And I walk into that theater, which is completely empty except for my wife and two kids. <laughs> and I told her, I just stood before these people and said, where are you? Here you are. Sometimes I think that uh, our relationship with God is a little bit like that, although he is the one who is looking out over the balcony of heaven and asking the question, you put your name in the blank, where are you? There's plenty of examples of that in the Bible, Old and New Testament. In the book of Genesis, he says to Adam, he calls out, Adam, where are you? And you remember the story. You know, we're in the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. What a great series that's being led. And I love the story, the passage where we looked at that weeks ago. Adam and Eve are hiding because of their sin. And God calls out, Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where they already were. He did. But he wanted them to know that he was looking for them and he knew they were hiding. Hiding because of their sin. He would send a prophet to see the great King David, Nathan the prophet. Nathan goes in to tell this story to David and it's God speaking directly from the prophet to the king. 
And he tells him the story about someone in his city, someone in his kingdom who has taken somebody else's lamb. And, and he tells the story and David says, tell me who that man is. Where is he? Where is he hiding? He will not stand in my kingdom. And at that moment, God speaks through Nathan's voice and says, you're it. You are the man. You're the one who has committed the sin with Bathsheba. And you've taken Uriah's wife. And you've brought him out of battle. And you sent him back to the front to have him killed to cover your sin. And how many stories can you think of? When God is speaking, where are you? We can fast forward through the Bible and jump right into today's time. I heard Pastor Joe talk about these crazy times that we live in. Do we think God is not paying attention? And he's asking the same questions today. On the world stage, and you can just name the issue, and God wants to know where we are. Well, let's make it a little bit more personal. What if you put your name in the blank and God is saying to you, John, where are you in relationship to me? Put your own name in the blank. Sometimes it's easy for us to put somebody else's name in the blank, right? We, we find someone that we see out in public and they've done something that to us is reprehensible. They've mistreated an animal. They've mistreated a person. They've been unkind to a child. They've done something that is awful, socially awful. And it's easy for us to look at them and say, God is wanting to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. But we make it much more personal when we look inward. When we look at the man, the woman, in the mirror, and we think, what is God saying to us today? What would he say to you if you could have that momentary encounter? What would God say to you? One of the principles for understanding your Bible, if you were a seminary student, you would call it a principle of hermeneutics, how you interpret the scripture. For the rest of us, it's just how do we understand the Bible and apply it to daily life? One of those principles is the principle of Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament interprets the new. The New Testament brings light to the Old Testament. I think in Jesus' teaching, his travels, his ministry, his relating to people, he often used his knowledge of the Old Testament. After all, uh, he was one of the original authors. He knew the Old Testament, though it hadn't been put in book form. He knew what God was saying to his people throughout history. So it was easy for him to use that as a background. We're going to look at a story in a little bit from the New Testament, but I want to give some context to it by looking in uh, the book of Psalms. And I think we've got that on the screen. Let's pull that up. Yeah, this is um, Psalms 49, verses 12 through 20. And here's what the psalmist writes. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. Now, you could take out this little phrase, people despite their wealth, and you could simply say, people do not endure, and we don't. We die. Every day, we are a little bit closer to dying than we were the day before. But one of the things that kills us quicker than anything 
is our abundance of concern about our own wealth. And one of the lessons that life teaches us is wealth cannot prolong our life. It cannot increase our quality of life. It doesn't make it better. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They're like the beasts. That's the wild beasts. You know, like your neighbor's dog. <laughs> we have one just barks all the time. They are like the beasts that perish. Next slide. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves. Yeah. So there's a, a point to just stop and think. How much do I trust in myself? Or how willing am I to trust in God? And it's ironic looking at this verse and the story we'll look at in the New Testament. On our coins and on our paper money, what does it still say? In God we trust. Now, one day it won't. That's probably going to be changed as well. But for today, it says, in God we trust. And it's interesting that it's on our money. When you look in that mirror, when you fill in that blank, where are you? Where do you trust? This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They're like sheep. Well, that metaphor comes up all the time in the Old Testament. And it always leads us to the safest place for the sheep is with the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Yeah. If you don't have to want for anything, you don't have to trust in momentary, temporary, man-made wealth. They're like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. That's a cruel picture. I would rather want the shepherd who provides for me, who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, wouldn't you? Than for death to be my shepherd. But the upright, here's a note, a good note, positive note, the upright will what? Prevail. Another, look in the mirror. Do you want to be upright? And in this context, it means in, in lockstep with God regarding all your things, including your life. Next line. Yeah, uh, go back one, please. Yeah, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. The upright will prevail over those who have trusted in other things. Their forms, those who have trusted in other things, their forms will decay far from their princely mansions. Again, some foreshadowing maybe of the New Testament. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. It's the King James word. My father's house are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. And so many people we know, and maybe us, have worked so hard to prepare our own mansion here. I don't know if we're throwing it out like a gauntlet to God saying, look at the mansion I've made. Now, what do you got for me there? But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich. We just become mesmerized by the wealth of others. Have you ever known somebody that you've lived near, uh, lived near and you've heard the expression, keeping up with the Joneses? We hadn't lived in this particular area very long in Georgia, and my neighbor had all this stuff, and he just kept getting more stuff. And his garage was the same size as mine, 
I don't know where he put all of his stuff. But it was, he's got a boat, I get a boat. They got a pool, I build a pool. Well, we didn't do that, we couldn't. But it's trying to keep up with the Joneses. Don't be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. It's interesting, that word descend. You know, you might think, I'm going to ascend. He's saying the people that are burdened with the weight of wealth are going to descend and they can't take it with them. You've seen the picture where there's never a U-Haul hitched to a hearse. (laughs) You're not taking any of it with you wherever you're going. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves to be blessed and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. Said that twice. Usually when it's said once, it's important. If you repeat it, there's the point. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. Do you ever know someone who came into maybe a lot of money when they were very young or an inheritance? Or they got this is totally ridiculous, a refund from the Internal Revenue Service. Is today tax day? Did I say that? And they just blow it all at once. It's gone. Let's look at this next verse. This comes from, yeah, this is from Psalm 53, verse 2. This goes back to my initial illustration about God looking out at the movie theater and While I was standing in the dark, didn't know a person in the room, the people I did know were not in that room, God stands in the movie theater, and it doesn't matter how dark it is, it doesn't matter who you are, he knows you personally, and he knows everything about you. He knows your assumptions. He knows your liabilities. He knows your issues. He knows the condition of your heart. And the one thing you can know about him and trust him for is that he loves, cares, provides, and saves you and wants you to be in that trusting relationship with him, that you're going to put your trust in him more than all the wealth of the world. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand and any who seek God. It's a great question. Are there any? Is there any? like Abraham. Lord, will you save that city if I can find 50 good people? 20 good, 10, 5. Are there any who understand? And then fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus is with his disciples. I Sometimes we can read over those passages so quickly and not think, um, where are the disciples in this? What are they thinking? What are they hearing? What are they doing? What should they be hearing? What should they be doing? Well, Matthew 19 is a passage like that. If you have your Bibles, you can take a look there. We've got it on the screen, so we'll go through some of it. But you may remember this passage for a couple of reasons. A part of it is there's a a teaching about the children 
some people must have been their parents. <laughs> they must have decided, Lord, there's nothing else I can do with these kids except give them to you. And they brought those kids to Jesus. And the disciples, the word is rebuked. Why would the disciples who know Jesus, who love Jesus, follow him, rebuke parents and kids? Maybe thought they thought Jesus was too busy, too important, too concerned with other things, had too much else on his agenda. But Jesus takes the time and rebukes the disciples. They were rebuking and on the verge of getting the rebuke right back. And it says that Jesus placed his hands on the children, prayed for them, just what their parents wanted, just what those kids needed, and then began to go on his way. Brought the little children, Jesus, for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them, silly disciples. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Here's your after church, after lunch assignment. You go to Matthew 19. You look at chapter 18, 19, 20, 21. And every time the phrase, uh, come this way. Yep. Every time the phrase kingdom of heaven appears, I want you to circle it. In these chapters, Jesus is speaking specifically about the kingdom of heaven and how important pursuing it is above all things. And these disciples that are with him 24-7 need this message as much as anybody else who is hearing Jesus as he speaks to a diverse crowd. The next lines. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. We get to the next story. Then a man came up to Jesus. And here's where this passage from the Old Testament about wealth, people despite their wealth do not endure. They're like the beasts of the field. And here's, we know the story, and we could probably tell it in three or four sentences. Now, a preacher can't do that, but you could do that. It's the story of the rich, young ruler. And his story is told in no less than three of the Gospels. Remember I said if it's told once, it's important. Twice, it's very important. His story is told three different times. And each of them give us a different clue about his background, his character, what he's, what's going on in his own mind. One of the Gospel writers says, at this point, the young man comes up to Jesus and falls at his knees as though he's at the end of the road, at the bottom of the rope, that there is no other hope for him in his rich, young life. And you might think, he's got it all. He's got rich, wealth. He's young. And you know, when I, I, I started using this story in 1989, and I've used it quite a lot, but when I would tell the story before and I got the part about being young, I would say the young man is in his prime of life, which is always two or three years above where I am. I'm getting to the point in life where that doesn't really prevail anymore. I'm not sure that he's older than me, but he's in the prime of life. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. He's got some kind of power. Maybe he's an elected official or a ruler in an administration or some kind of important public figure. What else could you want? 
What else could you carry through life? He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. He asked Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now that word or those, that phrase, get eternal life, it's like just one more thing to pick up. It's like another award. I've got the Kiwanis Award. I've got the Rotary Award. The Eagles Club has given me a nice reward. The Moose Club gave me a nice reward. The friends of the, and you just named the organization, they've all awarded me. If you look at my wall at home, I've got plaques and awards and trophies. Love that old song we sing sometimes here. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. What's this guy or the other guys going to do with all their wealth? They think it's going with them. They don't plan on exchanging it for anything. But Jesus would say in Mark 8:38, Unless a man deny himself and take up his cross, then he can come and follow me. We're going to get to this young man's cross in just a minute. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He said, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Fair question. Remember the communion meditation from Sunday. Our speaker said there in those days, 615 different commandments that had been come up with way beyond the original 10. Which of the commandments? That's a fair question. So Jesus gives him a list. I like the list. If you, if you read this, you'll know that these commandments relate to how we relate to people, not how we relate to God. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All deal with how we get along with people. Well, this guy's rich young ruler. He knows how to get in and out of social circumstances. I wonder why Jesus said that. Maybe he said it because the biggest issue he was facing was, thou shalt have no other God before me. And his God was wealth. And for you, it could be something else. For all of us, it could be something different. Anything that we put before our relationship with God is an idol. And Jesus' view on idolatry, not good. So you think about the sanctuary of your home. And as you go in that front door and you go room to room and you see the things that are on the wall and the furnishings, what are the things in that place that are an idol for you that you actually put ahead of your relationship with God? young man said, hey, this is a piece of cake. All these I have kept since I was young. What do I still lack? 
Now here Jesus gets a little bit closer. You know, when they go to do work on your eyes, and I've had a lot done, they start way out here with a needle about 18 inches long, and they start to, yeah, it's terrible. I shouldn't even tell a story like that. It, be, it gets numb, and it gets as, as it becomes fully numb, then they can get all the way down onto the surface of your eye and do the hard work that needs to be done. Jesus is going there now. If you want to be perfect, that word is teleos. It means mature or complete in your relationship with God. If you want to be perfect in your relationship with God, won't this be a hard teaching for this guy? He's worked so hard to accumulate. What do you do for a living? I accumulate. What do you accumulate? Everything I can. Jesus says to him, go and sell your what? Possessions. It's hard to say because I've got my grandmother's Otta one that was made in the 1700s and came from Louis L'Amour, who was a Western writer in the 1980s. <laughs> Sorry for that. If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions. So what's your greatest possession? I'll tell you this, whatever your greatest possession is, somebody's got a better one. Somebody's got a bigger one. Somebody's got a more expensive one. Somebody going to look down on yours and go, that's all you got? And I'll tell you this, we did some downsizing when we came from North Carolina to Florida. And here's the thing that we found. All of the wonderful expensive, ornate, elaborate, world caliber, incredible antiques that I had accumulated over 40 years. One had lost incredible value because people don't generally care about them these days. And two, my kids didn't want any of them. So I don't know what you have in mind for your possessions. The best thing you can do is unload that burden from yourself. I'm not saying you need to go and sell all that you have. Jesus looks in this man's life and for him, he needed to go and sell his possessions and give to the poor. Now he could look at us, Jesus could look at us and say, look, you need to deal with your sense of pride because even after all these years, you still think you're better than anybody else. Or you still think everybody else is below you and their sin is more reprehensible than yours. Boy, let that one sit in and put salt on the wound. Let's spend more time dealing with our own sin than we spend thinking about what somebody else's sin might be. Is that okay? Yeah. We'd all be better if we do that. Next slide. And you will have treasure. <laughs> the guy is after treasure. He's been accumulating treasure. And Jesus said, if you want treasure, go and sell all the stuff that you got. And let me show you what I've got. Because what I've got is better than anything you're going to find on this earth. Right? That's a message we need to be telling people. We're not storing up things for ourselves on earth where moth and rust can get in and destroy. But we are storing up treasure in heaven the admonition of Jesus. Then he said, 
come and follow me. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, then come follow me. This is one of the saddest verses. I think this is 23. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Usually we think that great wealth makes us happy. My alarm's going off. I know how to handle this because I've watched Pastor Cord week after week after week. <laughs> Tell him I said that. Listen, somebody online <laughs> wrote in and said, um, hey, could you let us know who's preaching week by week? I said, why is that? And they said, because oh, I need to know sometimes when I need to bring a sandwich. <laughs> I thought, you're at home. Your kitchen's right around the corner. Get up and go get it. Quit complaining. We rejoice with great wealth. We've got enough. We've got more than enough. But he goes away sad. His wealth is making him sad. What Jesus said, you need to separate yourself from your things. The things are the things of the earth. Yourself needs to be dedicated to me. What's next? Yeah. Here come the disciples again. All right, um, in this chapter, Jesus has a teaching on marriage. And the disciples' conclusion is, well, it's better not to marry. That's not what Jesus was teaching. In this, in this chapter, they rebuked children. That's crazy. Jesus did not intend for children to be rebuked in that way. At the end of this story, the disciples are astonished. If rich people cannot enter the kingdom, who then can be saved? And then Peter says, Lord, we've left everything for you. Houses and fields and possessions. What is there going to be for us? Like this rich young ruler is learning at the same time in the real time that the disciples hopefully maybe this time are still learning and will learn it forever and that is life plus stuff is zero life plus Jesus is everything Lord we love you we praise you and thank you Thank you for letting us spend time in the Old Testament to see the context with respect to the wealth and what it can do and what it can't do. And thank you for bringing us to the New Testament so that we can see how you dealt with the subject of wealth with your disciples and how you're still dealing with us in that matter today. Let us put aside every weight of sin that clings to us and let us pursue Jesus and him alone. In his name we pray.